Writing in 1889, uh, the author of the manuscript release number six said, lift no burdens from God's people that he would have them bear. Jesus bore the cruel cross to Calvary. Do not cast burdens upon any class that he would have them released from. I want to take a few moments at the beginning of this message to remind you that God will hold me accountable for my role in assisting you in finding the path of life. And God will hold every parent and every pastor and every teacher accountable in a similar way. The Bible says, be sober and be vigilant for your adversary. The devil goes about as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. This morning, I want to remind you that we are involved in what is called a great controversy. And in that controversy, there is one who is much wiser than us who plies his sophistries. In other words, practices his deceits upon us. And without the aid of the Holy Spirit and the indwelling presence of God through that Spirit, we should find ourselves extremely disadvantaged. And this morning, I'm going to suggest that not only have we been disadvantaged, that we have been deceived. And unless we follow the, with a willing heart the clear directive of the Word, we shall deepen in that deception. Now, I'm not suggesting that all here have, and I'm not suggesting that all who will listen to this have been either. But this morning, I very much intend to challenge your integrity. As a matter of fact, this is a sermon dealing with spiritual integrity. When I was a younger man, about 1988-89, I was the illustrious owner of three rolling incendiary devices. They were known as Ford Pintos. And for those of you that are old enough to remember, these are vehicles that would blow up if they were hit in the rear in certain ways. And uh, that made them fit my price range because they were not high on the demand list. I owned a red one, a yellow one, and a blue one. Two of them actually worked. And as I, um, I, I did own one other car, a little Nissan Sentra that my wife drove to South Bend Junior Academy where she was the teacher there. But uh, fulfilling the proper role as the quasi-mechanic and man of the house, I drove that red Pinto from South Bend, Indiana to Bering Springs to the seminary every day. It had the illustrious uh, accessory of a rope, like you'd hang your clothes on hanging out the door so that it was attached to the inside lever because the button to release the door was gone on this car. Uh, I would park it in the seminary parking lot I mean in the PMC parking lot because it has a little bit of a slant to it and I didn't want everybody to see me pushing the car, jumping in it and popping the clutch to get it to start. Um, it, was, it was a unique vehicle uh, that overheated on me coming north on what was uh, 31s, now M139, just north of Niles and I can remember scooping water out of a roadside puddle to put back into the radiator to get me to school. It was quite a piece of work. And finally the day came for me to bid it adieu. Someone responded to my newspaper ad and we settled on the grand total. And this was a working vehicle, mind you, so somebody else was slightly worse off than me. Uh, A working vehicle for $125. Now, 30 years ago is a little while and I understand it it could be maybe doubled in price today. But when I agreed with the man on $125, I practiced what I have tended to practice, not always, throughout the years. And that is, if I size somebody up that I'm dealing with, they appear to have any modicum of integrity about them, I don't count the money they give me. Now, that may be foolishness, and uh, at some level it was on on this evening, because it was a, a cold early winter day about like this, And the man handed me, which was not a big wad, $125 is not a big wad of money. He handed me the money and I stuck it in my pocket. The title was signed over, it was put in his hands and he drove off. There's only one problem with the car, the car was flat out out of gas, it was empty. Fortunately, just around the corner there was a uh, speedway and uh, I decided after the man left, I'd count the money. Now, I believe that uh, if you're an honest man, you're gonna give me the right amount of money unless you made a mistake. If you're a dishonest person, I want you to know that somebody trusted you, and I want that to hang in your mind until you become trustworthy. 
When I reached into my pocket that night and pulled out the money in my pocket, I counted $150. Immediately I thought, he overpaid me. Now, in that phase of my life, uh, I wasn't used to giving big tips or anything else like that. And I thought to myself, he gave me more money than he thought. I know where he's at. I'm going to go give it back. I had a little bit of time to figure this out. Not too much because I had no record of where the man lived. So I jumped in my probably decent car, ran over the speedway. He had the nozzle, I believe, in the little red car's uh, tank. And he looked kind of dazed when I gave him 25 more dollars. And I said, you overpaid me. Um, he didn't argue with me. Maybe he thought he made a mistake. When I got home that night, and I was counting the money a little bit later, I thought to myself, I already had $25 in my pocket. <laughs> and so I gave him my money. And it's the best $25 I've ever given back in order to maintain my integrity. Because I had a period of a minute or two during which I was going to make a decision. And one decision could have been, well, let's think about this a little longer. And they could have been long gone down the road and there'd been no way for me to give him his $25. But I'm thankful to the God I serve and to my parents that I have been taught strict honesty. In this case, integrity of person. Now, I'm here to tell you we are living in an immoral age. And I doubt anybody listening to me now or in the future to this message would care to disagree with me. Grab as much as you can. Lie when you need to. Don't get caught up in anybody else's trouble. Who cares what the family looks like or what the state of the American home is? And the list could go on. We are not living in an age of integrity. This is why it shouldn't be terribly hard for the church to stand apart as salt and light. But my fear is, is that we have found ourselves infected with the same societal diseases with very little accountability on behalf of those that administer in heavenly places, in spiritual capacities. In other words, churches where we treat you like consumers and give you what you want, as opposed to congregations seeking to understand what the beauty of holiness is and how to live it out in a dark society, letting the light shine. I've entitled my message, The Tortoise and the Prayer. It's a takeoff, of course, on Aesop's fable, The Tortoise and the Hare, in which the hare gets going and decides to rest, and the tortoise, plodding on, manages to pass him up and win the race. Now, I'm going to tell you from the beginning what my premise is, and you can mull it over while I speak, but here's the premise. It doesn't matter how much faster the hare is, if an immoral age decides to get just a little bit more of an advantage on you and flip the turtle on its back. Now, there's probably nothing more helpless than a turtle on its back. But if you really want to win the race, just incapacitate the other side. It might be narrative and messaging that, that gets out in front, and you don't want the other side to ever catch up. And here today, I want you to understand that at some point in time, someone in this society, and it was re-echoed by some in the church, determined that mandating vaccinations was really just a personal decision and a medical decision. It was not within the realm of liberty of conscience. It was not within the realm of religious discussion. And it was personal, and the corporate church really shouldn't get its hands dirty and certainly shouldn't embarrass itself by sounding like some of these people who think maybe we should talk about this for a little bit. You see, spiritual integrity is not something you put on like a nice Sabbath outfit and take off after you eat a good Sabbath dinner. No, spiritual integrity is a function of constant, principled ever-present issues of character. 
And if you don't have it when you sell a little red Ford Pinto, you don't have it. And if you don't have it when the wolf comes looking for somebody to devour in the flock, you don't have it. And I could wish that you could have it because your names are on the book or you work for the church, but that's not how it works. Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. We have a man standing in the midst of a large arena, manacled. He is shackled. He is handcuffed to a soldier. And he has been left there because the previous leader or procurator or governor didn't know what to do with him. He had been seen in the temple in Jerusalem. He had been accused of bringing Gentiles inside the holier precincts, if you want to say as much, of the temple in Jerusalem, and they about took his life because they had recognized him as the one who had been going all around Europe and Asia declaring this living Christ. He had been saved from the mob in Jerusalem and been taken by secret farther north into the country. And it just so happened that Felix, having succeeded Festus, Agrippa, who has Jewish understanding, comes to experience a message from the Apostle Paul, and it is a very, very inconvenient message. Lift no burdens from God's people that he would have them bear. Do not cast burdens on any class that he would have them released from. I want you to think about that this morning, for I'm here to challenge you. Last week in my message entitled Character and Cowardice in the End Times, it appears that God pricked the conscience of many. It was not my intention to call anyone a coward, except to define what cowardice looks like in crisis so that none of us could let fear run the show because fear and cowardice are not the same thing. Fear is a function of humanity. Cowardice is the operating mentality of some who keeps duty from getting in the way. Here's Paul standing before Felix and Agrippa, preaching his own testimony about the resurrected Jesus, encountering him on the road to Damascus. And as we come down to verse 25, after it's been proclaimed that his great learning is driving him mad, we have this interesting statement. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became afraid and he said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. Well, I want to tell you, there are some who could wish that at some level, uh, there would be no more sermons how the Christian life intersects with the crisis of our day. But this is the greatest crisis in the U.S. and the United in the, in the earth that we have seen in our lifetime. And it appears that the tortoise has been turned on its back, and we've been told that there is nothing of religious liberty or religion, but only personal conviction and medical decision-making. And this morning I am here to make sure that this is a complete narrative fallacy that should never have been begun and never been foisted on the church of God. The Bible says, the book of John He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and he flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters the flock. It's important for us to understand that if there is a crisis, and we do not fulfill our role in the crisis, we are not a child or a member of the communion of the family of God. We are simply a hireling who's glad to get something in their hand but not willing to risk more than what a business relationship would demand. It's important for us to remember, for some were disturbed by the idea of me prompting you to reach out to those who lead out in this faith community, in this conference, that our founders were abolitionist and prohibitionist, and that Abraham Lincoln wrote in the review to be sure and vote for Abraham Lincoln. 
For those of you that are worried about political talk, you need to remember something. The Adventist church works as a representative form of governance. You get to think for yourself. If you want to write a letter, write a letter. If you don't want to write a letter, don't write a letter. But if you'd like to see things change, you might want to talk to the change makers. Do it prayerfully, respectfully, with great reverence, as it were, for the the stewardship of leadership they carry. But to suggest that Adventists who were abolitionists and prohibitionists and part of the Christian temper, or at least supportive of the Christian temp, women's Christian temperance movement, the idea that you could silence somebody's voice by calling them divisive or political really needs to be held up against the bar of time. For almost 100 years, the Seventh-day Adventist Church was aligned with many of the same thoughts as the Republican Party. That does not make us political operatives when we speak to the same issues. And it is ad hominem attack to suggest so. For indeed, there are holy men and holy women and holy parents and holy teachers and holy professors who believe they are duty-bound to protect the sheep. Creating one standard for modern-day ministry that somehow we are not to understand how things work inside of our own church. And I want to remind you of something, especially every preacher or parent who feels like they're standing by themselves. For almost 30 years, William Wilberforce was against 400-plus members of parliament. And there were times when he was ready to give up without proper challenge and encouragement, he would have. But praise God today, he was determined to make society a better place. And I ask you this morning, is this moral? And if it is moral to make society a better place, is the opposite immoral? And I don't want us to forget the stories in the Bible either, for Paul, once caught up in the midst of a controversy, where Pharisee and Sadducee were united, recognized this fact, and he cried out, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. I'm on trial for the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And the meeting might as well have been over because he pitted one part of the church against another. And I ask you, friends, was that political? Think about it. We're not living in the age of the easy sound bites. This isn't anecdotal religion. This is a day that tries men's souls. This is a sober moment. It's not an age in which we should throw around little sound bites here and little sound bites there. So this morning, I want to remind you of one more thing, one more action of, of the Apostle Paul. You know, he had, been, he had been beaten and thrown in a jail in Philippi, and that night he had been miraculously released. The message got back to the magistrates of that Roman-governed town, and they said, Send him away, let him go. And Paul says, oh, no, no, no. (laughs) You come, and you get me out of this jail, and you walk with me to the edge of the city because I have a few things to say to you. Why did Paul do this? Because he understood that holding these men accountable would create a little bit of a firewall between them and the prejudice of their community. Was it a political action? This morning, I want to go over at least 10 things that I believe are immoral about our current situation. You say, well, why, Pastor? Probably some of what you've said we've heard before. Absolutely no doubt. Because if there is anything in this situation that is immoral and you sit on the sidelines, you yourself join the immorality. That was the message of last week, along with every one of the first 12 chapters of John, written by John the Beloved, who put his head on the breast of Jesus, who points out the divisive nature of truth, especially as it centers in Jesus. Principle is difficult to manage. Legalism is a lot easier to embrace. And how inconvenient it would be. But the church is not to be released from the burdens it is to carry, and we are to release people from burdens they ought not to carry. Immorality number one, Leviticus chapter 19. Let's go there if we could. The Old Testament book, the often quoted statement of Jesus, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. The first immorality I want to bring to your 
cognitive and spiritual senses is this. It is immoral for you to have no concern for your neighbor. Vicus chapter 19, verse 17. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You don't like what your parents say. You don't like what the preacher says. You don't like what the boss says. You better be a principled and Christian with some integrity because you're not given permission to hate anybody. You should not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. You know, when you stand out of the way for wrong to triumph, part of the blood that is on the hands of the wrongdoers is on your hands as well. Not Ron Kelly's sentiments, easily supported in the spirit of prophecy. Verse 18, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people. In other words, keep your heart right towards your best friend and towards your worst enemy, towards your mom and towards your dad, and towards your Christian brother and sister. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. Now, I would like to arraign before the bar of justice today two groups of people. I'd like to arraign those who are casual about mitigation of disease and spend more time on political websites, deepening their passion for their political perspectives, I'd like to arraign you before the bar of justice and remind you that the Bible does speak of proper mitigation to protect others from disease. I want you to understand that you are not to destroy the credibility of the Christian church with a callousness, a carelessness, and a casualness that looks like you're more interested in being with the non-cooperative side with a little strength, umph, and power and maybe moral high ground. And I also want to arraign before the bar of justice those on the other side who are so absolutely confident that their approach to mitigation is right that they could deny somebody a job or an educational opportunity. They're both wrong. They're both immoral. And when you fail to think about the needs of your neighbor, when you allow grudge to hold in your heart, or you don't care and love your neighbor as yourself, you are no longer a Christian of integrity, and it would be better for you to quit fooling yourself with your Sabbath appearance at whatever church you go to. Writing in the book of Micah, God will go so far as to say, could somebody please close the doors of the church? I don't want your offerings. Jesus would say if you're on the way to church and you've got aught in your heart against another, leave your offering, go fix the relationship, and come worship me. That invitation today I extend to any of my colleagues, any of my church members, any of my friends. If you'd like to have a personal discussion with me and seek truth and let iron sharpen iron, I relish the opportunity even though my schedule will limit some of my availability. But I'm here to tell you today, we are to care about our neighbor. The discussion is, how? The second thing I want to make sure I communicate today is that it is immoral to run when you see the wolf. How does the wolf appear? He appears sometimes in the form of a boss. Sometimes he appears in the form of a friend. Sometimes he appears in the form of a potential lost opportunity if you actually do what God says to do. Disfavor, the wolf of disfavor, the absence of accolade and applause. The wolf takes many forms of appearance, but running in the presence of the wolf, maybe it's the disfavor of an adolescent. These principles apply across all of our life experiences. And I want to remind you again, as I have before, cowardice is not fear. It is fear ruling and keeping you from acting. I want to remind especially all those leaders that are listening to me here today that Moses had to learn a deeper level of honesty. Arrogance is a blinding factor. Fear is a blinding factor for a leader. Pride. She writes... Short-sighted mortals would have dispensed with the 40 years of training amid the mountains of Midian. 
deeming that it was a great loss of time. But infinite wisdom placed him, that's Moses, who was to be the mighty statesman, the deliverer of his people from slavery and circumstances during this period to develop his honesty. It doesn't say to give him honesty. It says to develop his honesty. We are in moments that are trying men's souls. And only God can know in the deep recesses of your person whether or not you are acting with integrity and you are being honest with the messaging from heaven. If you honestly disagree with someone else, you won't need to attach any emotion to that disagreement that would make you hate the other person or try to silence the other person. Especially in dialogues similar to those we are having. Yes, Moses' honesty needed to develop in his leadership journey, and it's possible that honesty may need to develop in all of our journey as well. Let us not think ourselves less than, more than, or less needing than Moses. Number three, it is immoral to require anyone to take a substance into their body that they choose not to. This is the Nuremberg Code. For those of you who don't know your world history very well, this is what was developed after the atrocities of the concentration camps in Germany when men and women were held accountable. There is even, uh, I don't know how accurate it is, but there is even purported statements of European leaders suggesting that we don't need to live by that code anymore. I didn't take the time to actually verify whether that was true or not. I did take some time to see it. It appeared to be fact. I'm not going to label it to any individual. But the very fact that the thing could make it into the discussion zone ought to trouble us. Now, I want to flip the turtle back over on his legs because I believe a secular society does look at this situation as a personal conviction and a medical decision. And if you're a secularist, that's probably the paradigm or the sieve or the filter by which you make all of your decisions. But if you're a Christian... Every element of your life is in the hands of God to be shaped by principles and precept in Scripture and by the impress of the Holy Spirit. And it's not an ordinary relationship, you know, 70 years and out. It's, it's an opportunity to glorify God in a body temple that is more impressible to the Spirit, not less, with good decision-making. Number four, it is immoral to compel someone to receive a vaccine in the name of the common good and exempt the common good from liability and legal responsibility for those who experience adverse effects. The Bible clearly connects cause and effect. It may be your ox that gores somebody once, and you didn't know about it, so you're not held liable. But if that ox gores somebody again, it's on you. It may be how you fight. It may be what happens in the elements of uh, interaction with your neighbor. Because, in effect, and personal responsibility, all the way down to the New Testament directive that if you don't work, you don't eat, these things are never taken out of the forum without somebody paying the price. The cross itself is the ultimate cause effect dynamic. Jesus didn't just sit up in heaven and type into the computer, well, we're just going to forget about what the human race did and bring them all home anyway. No. Jesus paid the price of my sin and yours. It was not a casual event. It is immoral, number five, to compel someone to receive a vaccine without transparency as to what is in the vaccine or process undertaken to ensure its efficacy and safety. When you compel somebody without transparency, you will violate two words primary in the medical community, informed consent. You run over them. They are not just thrown under the bus. The bus backs up and goes forward and backwards over them again and again and again. You cannot take an individual in a free society and force them to receive a mystery without some kind of dialogue. Daniel chapter 1 is the respectful encounter of a man and his three friends in regards to to food. Genesis chapter 2 is the story of opportunity for informed consent. God had warned Adam and Eve. She was still at the tree. It's an issue of trust and honesty. 
It is immoral, number six, to break implicit social contracts. We asked people, most notably medical personnel, to take risk on the front side of this for the common good when there was no vaccine. Then to deny them medical autonomy after a vaccine is introduced. Many in the course of serving the sick prior to the vaccine contracted the disease. Pitting personal conscience against a job and a paycheck is disingenuous to the earlier accolades as heroes, and it reveals a corporate self-centeredness and cultural shallowness that can live with this kind of hypocrisy. Yes, risk your life for me, and if it seems like it's pragmatic, practical, prudent, you might be able to keep your job farther down the road based on our decision-making, not yours. Hero but unfit for employment cannot be reconciled. We have done this as a society. It is categorically wrong, completely disingenuous, and every single person who has not objected to the fact that it's happened ought to feel they are personally responsible for the loss of job by some. I have a letter sitting on a table in this very building of a person for whom the very scenario I just described happened. The Bible says in Psalm 15:4, he swears to his own hurt and he doesn't change. Proverbs 10:9, whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but he who makes his way crooked will be found out. The integrity of the upright, Proverbs 11:3 guides them, but the crookedness of the treacherous destroys them. Proverbs 20, verse 7, the righteous who walks in his integrity, blessed are his children after him. Proverbs 28, 6, better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who's crooked in his ways. We have the story of the Good Samaritan. The first two people that pass him by had good reasons to do that. Acts 24, 16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man, the Apostle Paul. And 1 Peter 2, 12, keeping your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of their visitation. And lastly, but not least, praying for us, Hebrews 13, 8, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Number seven, it is immoral for the church to silence respectful and honest dialogue as it did with the Right to Refuse online seminar that was supposed to be held on July 31 at the Beacon Light Tabernacle in the Atlantic Union. This was an abuse of power. It was an act of intellectual arrogance on behalf of someone who decided to turn off a duly prepared for and properly processed preparation for an event. And lastly, it's a repudiation of Protestant principles which allow for the examination of ideas and rigorous debate. Now, what's more so is that on August 20 and 21, we held an event in this very church called COVID, Coercion and Conscience. And if I did not have up-close and personal experiences with people in positions of power who sought to undermine that event and stifle the voices of professionals in this community, I should perhaps be willing to pass by this. But because I watched the absence of integrity to the process of determining truth be eroded by some of the people that are my co-workers and co-laborers in this Adventist church, I absolutely cannot and will not for seconds countenance this kind of environment inside a Protestant, perhaps remnant of Protestant churches. When they burned the books in Ephesus, 50,000 drachmas worth, and the cooling of the trade of Diana of the Ephesians, there was a major disturbance. It was so major that for hours people were shouting, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Paul wanted to run into the audience and get things straightened out. The church wouldn't let him. But what I want you to know is that when you have to silence the opposition by intrigue or intimidation, you are walking in the dark shadows of a place you don't want to go. Paul also was run out of some other towns in Asia Minor. And it wasn't enough that they ran him out. They followed him. He was stoned, 
thrown on the garbage pile and left for dead. They decapitated James. They put Peter and John in prison and they exiled John to Patmos. Why? Because dialogues that pursue truth are dangerous to darkness and to error. Number eight, it is immoral to deceive. Some of you may have followed in the news the unseating of the New York governor. His brother was the anchor of the most popular evening program on CNN. But his involvement in managing the messaging of his brother's legal campaign or PR campaign was a break with the idea of any semblance of objectivity in news reporting. On October 18, I was driving into this church and I was listening to National Public Radio and they were describing the fact that Colin Powell, one of the great leaders of our country, had passed away from complications due to COVID-19. Fortunately, every once in a while, I push a different button on my radio. And I learned a day or two later, he was fully vaccinated. The same radio station that I was listening to on the way on Monday couldn't come to disclosing that fact until Thursday. When you don't tell the whole truth, you didn't tell the truth. And that goes for the right as well as the left. Let nobody be confused about where I stand. Deceit and manipulation and spin are immoral in a Christian culture. Number nine, it is immoral to bully and intimidate anyone, including medical professionals, and to stifle the dialogue and potential use of safe drugs in early treatment. Bullying has to do with numbers, size, power, or position. Jesus stood up to it in his day. He was the ultimate recipient of it at the cross. But just before the cross, when Mary was pouring the spikenard on his feet, Judas started in not-so-quiet tones saying, what a waste. And everybody else that was sympathetic to Judas and not particularly appreciative of her and totally not understanding what Jesus was about to do or who he really was, got right in in the narrative. And Jesus said, in the dialogue that prompted Judas to betray him, leave her alone. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. And all of the good men at the table thought the gift could have benefited the common good. And of course, Judas would get an extra slice of the pie. Number 10, it is immoral to become an extension, I'm speaking to the Seventh-day Adventist church now, of, of an entity that we prophetically know will eventually speak like the dragon. This is how some conferences, educational institutions, and healthcare facilities were aligning themselves. One shudders to think of what the landscape of liberty would look like without a federal judge to balance power. It is not our job as a church to enforce the decrees of a government that can't dialogue and come to reasonable solutions even on its own internal systems. The church is to show a different and better way. The Bible says the path of the righteous is like the light of day that shines brighter and brighter until the full day, but the way of the wicked is darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Number 11, it is immoral. No, I'm going to put this in the positive. It is moral. It is moral to stand up for those without a voice and without a choice. My biblical example is John chapter 8, woman caught in adultery. They would have gladly taken the stones and used them first on her and not long, not long later on Jesus. Jesus, in effect, without saying a word, drove back the opposition for a person who had been trapped and was a victim. 
It is moral to awaken the conscience of a church or a nation, especially when that nation begins to abandon biblically grounded principles, which include individual liberty, and it begins to speak as a dragon. When a Christian makes a decision about their body temple, they examine the substance which is potentially able to be ingested. It may be alcohol, it might be unclean meats, it might be junk food. But their decision making is not a medical decision. It is a stewardship of their body temple under an umbrella of healthful encounters with the God above and their fellow below. In this moment where we're at, because the substance that some believe ought not to be received into their body is not, it be, just because it is a medical pro- pro- product, does nothing to change the spiritual framework of their decision making. They're regarding their stewardship, making the best decision they can. The point of reference is not a personal medical decision, which is what a secular person is doing. It is a personal health decision impacted by the information regarding the substance, the principles in Scripture, and it depends upon the Holy Spirit for specific guidance. For the secular and the non-religious, it may be an opinion, but for the Christian, it is a conviction born of prayer, information gathering, and biblical principles. You can remove the centrality of God from the person's decision-making and foist a secular paradigm onto the Christian, but that is not the church's job. It's the secular world's perspective. We are not to echo it. One must be left to believe that for many Christians, Christ is not the central frame of decision-making. Or that in arrogance and hubris, They believe their opinion is the only right one. And they have no problem forcing someone else. To further complicate matters, the absence of transparency, the co-opting of force, and the maligning and marginalizing of dissent has created an almost perfect environment for the rejection of even the best medical intention. And I'd like to know where all the managers and leaders are who can't look at society and say, yeah, it's pretty messed up. My wife was receiving medical treatment not long ago, and the person administering the treatment said as much. If the vaccine presented prevented you from getting the disease and spreading the disease, we might be having a different discussion. But it unequivocally and without objection does not do this. So the question before us is whether or not the same general tension and distrust in the larger society has to be in the church. I say no. But I say you better be ready to do a lot of praying and you better love truth and you better be okay with iron sharpening iron. But relegating every opposite voice to the function of conspiracy is completely disingenuous and it is absolutely unchristian. Can we be transparent? Can we reject force? Can we have open and honest dialogues without being embarrassed? Just maybe we could model how it ought to work. Once compulsion and force entered the equation, fair-minded people who are not afraid were almost duty-bound to object. Now, I've made a lot of assertions here. Some of them are societal ethics like the Nuremberg Code, and some of them are completely biblical principles which I've sought to connect to issues of integrity. Even if of the several I presented only one or two you agreed with, you would be duty-bound to do something. So, lest anybody misunderstand my intent, I desire to not remove one burden of inconvenience from any of you. And I desire to lift as many burdens off other people as I possibly can. And there's one more thing that's imperative for me to share. When we come to the various and sundry laws of the Old Testament, I have no problem with a discussion of mitigation. In other words, in the Old Testament terms, one of the major mitigations was quarantine. 
But I do want everybody that does soundbite preaching to understand that when I listen to your sermons, I'm going to examine what you're saying. And I want you to examine this. It was against the law of the Old Testament to take somebody's upper millstone and keep it overnight. So what does that say to taking away somebody's job because they don't agree with you? Isn't that the equivalent of providing the basic needs? You go back and look at it. I believe it's Deuteronomy chapter 24. You can't keep somebody's mortal and pestle or their upper millstone. No, they need that to live. And when we went to the position of totally backing up on our social contracts, I didn't have to know everything about the vaccine, and neither do you, to understand that we've got some wrong principles and spirits operating here in this arena. So, if you combine this message with last week's message, now you get to decide if there's anything for you to do. Because cowardice and fear are two different things. If you're fearful, welcome to the human race. If you're cowardice, welcome to the operating principles of self-preservation and self-centeredness. But they don't fit in the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't force anybody. In heaven, he didn't force Lucifer to do a single thing. He actually lingered long with Lucifer. Finally, when Lucifer made up his mind, he directed him that it was time for him to go. It wasn't just God's conclusion. It was the conclusion of the loyal angels. He refused, and there was war in heaven. When Adam and Eve were put in the garden, they were warned there was an enemy that was allowed to be at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But God didn't keep the enemy from having access to their minds. When Jesus was here on this earth, if you read the Desire of Ages, in that moment when Judas brought the rabble, the spirit of prophecy is clear. With one look, he could have reduced his enemies to dust. And what's more so to make the temptation so great was that the whole Jewish nation was waiting for a Messiah that would force everybody to believe how great they were and fall in line. But he didn't do it. And when it comes to your and my salvation, there'll be no execution of justice until a thousand years goes by. And everybody can see that God went as far as anyone could go to redeem and restore, to appeal. And finally, at the end of those thousand years, just to show that God was right, they'll attempt to destroy God before He has to destroy them. And one more thing. When the fire comes down, it's not a potential eternal roasting session. There's no spiritual bully sitting on the throne in heaven that compels you to do anything. He'll respect your choice and let you experience a second death. I'll tell you, the mentalities and theologies of compulsion aren't too hard to find. And I'll end with this thought. In 608 of the Great Controversy, the author tells us that as the crisis approaches, many who have been a part of this great work will abandon their place. Why? Because they have imbibed the spirit of the world. That doesn't happen overnight. It could be happening today. But the spirit of Jesus, that brings peace, love, courage, kindness, self-control. You see, friends, if there's nothing moral about this situation then it's just one opinion against another. But if there's something moral about this opinion, the discussion of fear and cowardice is relevant. Leadership. So today, I'm trying to put the turtle back on all four feet because somehow the narrative that got going tried to overrun the better judgment and spiritual sensibilities of God's people. And it's time for us to address the immoralities of an immoral age as we address the immoralities of compulsion in regards to the common good. May God help each of us to have the spirit, nobility, and dignity of the living Christ. And may God save all of us
from acting any other way except the way Jesus himself lived and his desire to act out in us. May God help us and may God bless you. Let's stand as we sing our closing hymn. Now this hymn is not as commonly known, but I especially believe the words in it, the tune is fairly simple. This hymn is not as commonly known as some, but is worthy of some serious reflection. Forgive us when we've sat on the sidelines when society has been descending or slouching towards Gomorrah. Forgive us, Lord, when things that maybe that ought to have been addressed before have not. And help us in this moment, Lord, find the Christian nobility, dignity, kindness, and courage to save our dear church from wandering off into the echo chambers of the modern secular narrative. Lord, you would not have a single burden removed from your church that they are to carry. This may be the most elemental discussion surrounding this message. And you would have us lift burdens off people who have no voice and no choice. So now, Lord, I'm praying, may we be the voice of those who have been run over by societal fear and pragmatism. And I pray, Lord, nerve us. Those that wait upon the Lord, renew their strength. May we watch and pray. May we see you strong to save. And may the world come to see the excellency of a remnant that can have mature dialogue, model dignified disagreement, pray its way to understanding and speak truth to power in a society that's lost its way. Help us now, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.